Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Sly Hooper podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Hustle. It is the second episode under Blue Wire Hustle and the 10th episode of this podcast and many more episodes to come under Blue Wire Hustle. Want to go over a few want to go over a few housekeeping notes before we get into today's episode. First off, this podcast will be coming out weekly every Wednesday and it will be about 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, I figured since this is a solo podcast, a 30 to 45 minute range is a good window. I mean, honestly, I wouldn't want to hear myself talk for 2 hours or so, but I mean, honestly, even I, I wouldn't want to hear myself talk for two hours, but 30 minutes to 45 minutes is a good place for a solo podcast, probably about an hour, an hour 15, whenever I have guests on, but the podcast will be weekly, and also, I have another podcast. It's called Box Out Banter. I co-host that podcast with Chris Okamura. We're on episode four already, and we previewed the Western Conference because, believe it or not, the NBA season is right around the corner. And we took a different approach to previewing the season rather than doing the generic let's go by team by team breakdown or trying to do a 15-hour podcast talking about every team in the West. We had a little fun with it. We did a eSports fighting game character style tier list for the teams. We had six tiers, and we tiered the teams accordingly, which ones were contenders, which ones were high upside playoff teams, and which team had LeBron. <laughs> so that episode was really fun. I can't wait to get into the Eastern Conference next week. We're going to be tiering that as well. But back to this podcast, we're going to do a little something something here. It's going to be called Five on Five, and... Basically, I'm going to be giving you five things that I'm looking forward to tracking, keeping my eye on as we dive in already in a quick turnaround to the NBA season. Still got to adjust to the fact that it's going to be a 72-game season. I keep saying things like, oh, this team could be a 50-win team or this team could be a 55-57 win team. And then you realize you're like, oh shit, there is like 10 less games <laughs> in the season. But I'm still going to be giving you my five things I'm going to track. So let's just dive right into it. So number one, the first thing I'm looking forward to is the Brooklyn Nets. Mainly, I want to see Katie and Kyrie come back. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving come back. Katie has been one of my favorite players to watch for a long time. I think he is arguably the greatest scorer in NBA history. Definitely the greatest scorer I've ever seen in my lifetime. I was too young for Jordan. And I barely, I do remember Washington Jordan, but obviously Wizards Jordan is was not the same, even though it was still crazy when you go back and look at some of the stats he put up in his age 37, 38 season with the Wizards. But Kevin Durant is one of my favorite players to watch, probably all the way back to Texas. I just remember being freaked out by him as a freshman in high school, just looking at this 6'9", 6'10", guard, just scoring effortlessly. And yeah, everybody had Greg Oden as number one in the draft that year, and rightfully so. 
I just would have picked Durant because at that point I had never seen anything like it. Yeah, Tracy McGrady, I grew up on him. Kobe Bryant, he was 6'8". Kobe Bryant was 6'7", 6'7"-ish. Vince Carter was 6'6". I had never seen anybody like Kevin Durant at that point in college. And I have had been a fan ever since. And I love Kyrie Irving as a player. He does say some dumb shit sometimes, but unfortunately the dumb shit he says kind of sullies the fact that he is a thoughtful person, but unfortunately that bleeds into how people view him as a player. I like watching him play. I think you can absolutely win a championship with him as the second best player, which he already did with the Cavaliers and was very, very important to that championship run, very obviously. But I just love his handle. I love his off-the-dribble game. He's just, you could tell, you know, people sort of rolled their eyes when KD and a few other players call Kyrie a basketball genius because he's not necessarily in the tier franchise players like Kawhi and KD, Steph Curry, all those guys. And Kyrie Irving has been hurt the last few years as well. Only played 20 games with the Nets the the this past season but he is a basketball genius he has probably the best handle I've ever seen he can get hot with the best of them he can score with the best of them and when he's on he's just so damn fun to watch because he can get really creative with his dribble with his footwork with the English he puts on the ball I just I miss watching Kyrie Irving play basketball and I actually think him and Durant can fit together pretty well offensively. I think most of the concerns come from the fact that it's they might there might be chemistry issues and people are afraid about how Kevin Durant and Kyrie are going to mesh even though they're best friends. The media accuses Kevin Durant of being moody and you know his attitude swings, it has ebbs and flows like any other human being ever. Kyrie Irving of course I explained his reputation earlier which you know, some of it he did bring on himself, but I also think a lot of it is bullshit. Like Adrian Wardranowski coming out with a hit piece over the summer when Kyrie Irving called a 80-player players meeting to discuss the safety of going into the bubble. Wardranowski called Kyrie Irving a disruptor, and I thought that was absolute bullshit, and it was an obvious hit piece. But I think most people realize that Kyrie Irving mostly means well, but also at the same time, whenever he says stuff like, well, we really don't have a head coach when you, you know, ask when he's asked questions about new head coach, Steve Nash, when he says stuff like, you know, oh, Kevin could be the coach. I could be the coach. Anybody could be the coach. You just don't say that. But regardless, I think their games fit together. Katie and Kyrie's they're coming off of injuries and I really want to see how Kevin Durant comes back. I think his game is actually kind of perfect if you're coming back from an Achilles injury because he doesn't really rely on athleticism. He was athletic as hell in his prime and a physical freak more than anything. But he wasn't like a leaper by any stretch. He wasn't a Gerald Green or, you know, Anthony Edwards or, you know, pick any athletic athletic freak, Andrew Wiggins, for as bad of a player as he is. Kevin Durant is not 
a leaper or a jumper like that, but he is still a physical freak. He's still seven feet tall, long arms, can shoot literally over anybody, has the golden touch. And I'm just really looking forward to seeing how he's playing because apparently he's been playing pickup and NBA players are like, "Uh uh-oh. And Kyrie Irving... I want him to come back and be healthy, but I'm still not sure if how healthy he'll be this season. Maybe all the time off, especially when his season was cut really short, and then you add the pandemic stoppage on top of that, on top of the bubble. He hasn't he literally hasn't played basketball in a year. His last game was November fourteenth against the Denver Nuggets on the road. Did not dress in the next game on the road in Chicago. And that was it. They started, they ruled him out. He had shoulder surgery. And, you know, Kyrie has had injury issues his entire career. And I, I just hope he stays healthy. Because, but And so I'm, I bring that up because maybe this extra year off might, do wonders for Kyrie. He's still only 27. In the 20 games he was playing with the Nets, he was sensational. Obviously didn't have his running mate with him, but Kyrie Irving is still a good player. And I do have questions about them defensively. I don't know if Kevin Durant is going to be the same defensive player after this Achilles injury, but they're going to be damn fun to watch. And they're absolutely a contender in the Eastern Conference for sure. Whether they're actually be in the finals, I don't think so. But when you have Kevin Durant, anything's possible. So I'm really looking forward to that. Speaking of the playoff race, the second thing I'm looking forward to is the play-in game. And not only that, the play-in game race. First of all, obviously, this was wildly successful. Um... When they experimented with this in the bubble, I was really excited because one, there's extra basketball. Two, there's more competitive playoff level atmosphere basketball. I would like to see a play in play in games with fans, but you know, unfortunately we're in a pandemic and everybody needs to be safe. Wear your damn mask, by the way. But regardless, I'm still really excited for the play-in games. I think it adds a fun wrinkle. I think it'll keep teams competitive towards the end of the season so we don't have to watch, you know, the dreaded late March, early April slog of basketball games once, you know, seeding has already been decided, especially in the Eastern Conference. Because the Western Conference, there was still jockeying for position, playoff position. Remember last year, there were like there were four teams vying for the eighth seed. And in the Eastern Conference especially, the race is going to be really interesting. So I'm looking at the standings right now. And, you know, last year you had, in the Eastern Conference especially, it's not going to be as bad as it was in the past. And, you know, last year I think the East took a leap in terms of good teams, or two years ago rather, Um And then they kept the trend up this year. And so it used to be that you could sneak into the seventh or eighth seed. Now, that's not the case. You, the the eighth seed really is the only seed that's up for grabs. Because if you look at Milwaukee, Toronto, 
Boston. We'll see on Indiana because of the Victor Oladipo stuff. Um, But if Oladipo has his head right and, um, you know, he stays healthy and starts to regain the form that we saw in the uh, 2017-18 season, then the Pacers will probably be in the in the mix for the playoffs. Of course, you got the Miami Heat. The Sixers have gotten way better, and I'm not going to talk about the Sixers this episode because that would just be too obvious. I want to put them in my five things, but you know, I'm not going to count them or the Sacramento Kings uh, because I'm interested in what the Kings are doing. I covered a few of their games last year with iHeart. I'm looking forward to covering some games again this year. So I'm just going to leave those two teams out, but the Sixers are in the mix. And then with a healthy Katie and Kyrie, the Nets are going to be good. So that's seven seeds locked up already. So now you're in a scrum with Orlando, who was the eighth seed last year by a pretty good margin over the ninth seeded Washington Wizards, who are going to get John Wall back. They have Denny Avdia, who I really like. The Hornets, they kind of got slightly better, even though they overpaid a lot for Gordon Hayward. I still like I like LaMelo Ball. Miles Bridges and P.J. Washington are really good. Devontae Graham is good. Terry Rozier, yes, the contract is bad, but I actually thought he was decent last year. Maybe you can get something out of Malik Monk. They are kind of thin with reserve bigs. They did bring back Bismack Biombo, which really doesn't do much, but you have to have bodies there. But I think the Hornets will be in the mix for the play-ins. The Bulls with the new coach, Billy Donovan, head, headed by Artur, Artures, who they brought over from Denver. Knicks, no. Pistons, no. Hawks have to be the favorite to be the eighth seed. But that doesn't really matter if there's a play-in game. Well, it does matter because the eighth seed and the seventh seed will play each other to see who becomes the seventh seed, and then the whoever loses the 7-8 game will have to play the winner of the ninth seed, 10th seed matchup. So this is how the play-in works. The seventh and eighth seed will play each other for the rights to be the seventh seed, and then the loser of that game has to play the winner of the ninth seed and the 10th seed game, and the winner of the ninth seed, 10th seed game will play the loser of the 7-8 game. And that team, the lower-seeded team, the ninth or the 10th seed, will have to beat that 8th seed two times to steal the 8th seed. Or the current 8th seed, who's facing off against the loser from the 9-10 game, just has to win one. And so that makes for really exciting and intense seeding races down the stretch. The quality of basketball late season will improve. And maybe finally, you know, it'll quell the league's obsession with trying to make teams competitive, even though they should really just not have a draft lottery if they really want to be serious about fixing the issue. So I'm really looking forward to the play-in game, especially the play-in game race in the East because there's just more bottom feeders in the East. But because they have a chance by nature of the play-in game, the East bottom race 
has become a lot more interesting, especially because, you know, some of these teams made moves in the front office. They've added some players, some young players from the draft that I'm really looking forward to watching. So at least there'll be some incentive, more incentive, at least if you're a casual fan, I, I will watch, I, I will watch any game. But if you're a casual fan, you'll maybe have more incentive to watch the bottom feeders play, so to speak. Eat the Western Conference, there's about three play-in teams. I when I did the tiers, I had Grizzlies, Pelicans, Thunder, or Grizzlies, Spurs, and Thunder. I have the Pelicans lottery hunting because I'm still not sure about them, which I will get into later. But even the play-in games in the Western Conference, that's gonna be crazy. Especially because you mean to tell me the seventh or the eighth seed, who is most likely going to be a high 40s, low 50 win team, could be upset? Sign me up for that. It, it just brings a lot of intrigue, and I'm glad the NBA is doing it. Next question, or next thing I want to track. I brought up the Bulls earlier, and this one is for my friends who are Bulls fans. I actually know, I actually know some people, and quite a few people who are Bulls fans, and I want to see what Billy Donovan does. With this roster, the Bulls have a plethora of talent that is that has been hard to fit. Also doesn't help that they had the worst coach I've probably ever seen in Jim Boylan. A lot of a lot of best and worst I've ever seen so far in this episode. But Jim Boylan is one of the worst coaches I have ever seen. Limiting Wendell Carter Jr. Basically ham hamstringing him, not allowing him to shoot threes, and just hindering his development. Um, taking forever to start Kobe White, even though you drafted him in the high lottery when you weren't good. Laurie Marketing has been injured the last few years, but he was also hampered playing in Jim Boylan's archaic offense. Just archaic coaching methods all that. And so I think the Bulls did the right thing. First of all, they hired former Denver Nuggets general manager Artortis Karnisavis as the president of basketball operations. And if you look at the team Denver is fielding right now, Bulls fans have to pretty have to feel pretty happy about that. Then they get Billy Donovan from the Thunder, who the two have mutually agreed to part ways. The Bulls pick him up. That's a good pickup. And he's already talking about... It has to be music to Bulls fans' ears because he's already talking about using Wendell Carter more as a passer, as a three-point shooter, as maybe a little bit of ball handling. Maybe just basically when he came out out of Duke, the comparison was a thicker, slightly more athletic Al Horford. Maybe not the intelligent player that Horford is, but still a damn smart basketball player. And Jim Boylan coming in as a coach is like the equivalent of... It would be like if somebody was developing a really fun modern video game, but they bring in some old head developer from the 1980s and is using 1980s, 1990s methods to ruin a game that is being made by clever smart people maybe not the best analogy but that the gist of it is a really bad coach coming in and trying to develop a really intelligent player is just I just feel awful for Wendell Carter 
and I hope Billy Donovan comes in and kind of salvages and gets market and and Wendell Carter back on track in terms of their development. He also talked about using market and more as a ball handler. He is a really good shooter for his size, obviously. He's seven feet. I know the numbers don't show it, but Marketing is a good three-point shooter. I just think in a better offense, obviously, with more modern thinking and better shot selection and better shot locations on the court will help improve his efficiency. And I do think there he is on to something in terms of, you know, maybe Marketing right now isn't good isn't adept to be, you know, a secondary ball handler, secondary playmaker, whatever Donovan said he envisioned marketing to be. But you got to try. You got to, you're a bad team. Marketing is 22. He has very clear offensive gifts. Just experiment and see. Obviously, you want to have him focus on his strengths and what he's good at. But if you want, if you're looking at marketing as your franchise, one of your franchise cornerstones, and you think he has more to his game, it is your duty to explore that. Within reason, obviously. If he has the skills to do that, you try to pull that out of him. And then, of course, Zach Levine is a sublime scorer, but, or not a sub- sublime scorer, but he's a really good scorer, terrible defender. Kobe White, you know, was really playing well before the stoppage, and, you know, finally was started under Jim Boylan, I think, for one game. And then the pandemic hit. But, you know, you still have you still have a decent amount of good players. I still like Tom. I still like Tomas Sadoransky. Thaddeus Young is just going to play forever. But then you bring in the vets like Garrett Temple, who is still a good player. You know, you take a chance on some guys on the mid-level like Noah Vonley and Luke Cornett who have very specific skills. Luke Cornett especially as a three-point shooter. Maybe he gets a minute there. They still have bad contracts on there, but there is a lot of young talent there that I think if they were just put in a more competent offense with competent coaching and player development, the Bulls could be one of those teams where nobody expected to be in the mix for a play-in. Speaking of sneaking up, well, not really sneaking up because, you know, everybody follows the NBA, but in terms of sneaking up, in terms of we might see this team in a conference finals, I love what the Portland Trailblazers did. And yeah, I know guys like Bill Simmons just make jokes about how the media just loves Neil O'Shea and stuff like that. And, you know, he likes he likes to poo-poo stuff like that. That's kind of his shtick. Whenever there's like a trend going or something or younger writers or younger media or whoever like a guy. And, you know, there is some truth to that, but also 80% not really. But, you know, he just likes to make his jabs. Yes, the Blazers had a fantastic Again, a fantastic offseason. They had one of my favorite offseasons out of any team. One, they traded, yeah, they traded two first-round picks, but when you have a Tier 1 franchise player like Dame Dalla, you got to go all in now. And they traded two first-round picks for Robert Covington. Obviously, he holds a special place in my heart. 
because he because I'm a Sixer fan and I watched him develop from just a three point bomber to him taking an outlier leap as a defender in the 2017 in the 2016 2017 season and now he's one of the best defenders in the NBA especially off ball one on one he's average to he could be average to good on if you catch him on the right night not as quick laterally so that limits his potential as a one-on-one defender but off ball he's one of the best tier one just one of the top in his class in terms of deflections steals off ball rotations he's a really good weak side shot blocker for his position and a really and a good rebounder and yeah you know his three-point shot has not been as good as you would hope by now but he's still 36% and the thing the thing about it is he bombs he bombs away like there's no hesitation and that means defenses have to respect him cuz he also has range so i think robert covington is the perfect wing the blazers have been looking for one any type of wing the last few years to kind of fill the roles that were left by mo harkless and al farouk aminu especially last season when those two were on new teams before that season started before last season started so they've had to kind of patchwork playing more guards three guard lineups and it was really tough especially without Nurkic but now he's back they re-signed Rodney Hood who's coming off an Achilles but I think in a bench role hopefully he can still be productive they got Derek Jones Jr. another athletic wing who played in the regular season for Miami but you know didn't play in the playoffs but I still like Derek Jones Jr. as an athletic game changer kind of wild card off the bench. Um, he's actually he's an, another wing that the Blazers, you know, are just trying to stockpile on top just to, you know, kind of balance out the roster positionally a little bit. Because now, now that you have three wings in tow, you have Gary Trent Jr., who, you know, didn't play much as a rookie in the 2018-19 season but started to get a lot of minutes more minutes his this past season shot 38 percent from three before the bubble and then in the bubble shot 50 percent from three showed that he was a tough-nosed rugged defender but you know you can't play him at small forward all the time because he is only what six five yeah six five and 210 pounds and you could be really good and tough-nosed and rugged all you want, but if you're guarding bigger forwards, it's just really tough. So that's why I think Robert Covington, Rodney Hood, and um, Derek Jones Jr. coming into the fold is really going to help. Obviously, Nurkic being back is going to help a lot because he is also an underrated defender. And, you know, he could be a hub of an offense. He's a dribble handoff guy. He can make good passes. And he started to show a little bit of the three before his nasty leg injury and in the bubble a little bit. But he was really better than I thought in the bubble. And if the Blazers can improve from their 27th rated defense, according to Cleaning the Glass, and get somewhere up to 15, 14, the 12 to 15 range, 
you might see the Blazers in the Western Conference. Because even though I would have the Clippers and Nuggets ahead of the Blazers right now, I think in the next tier, I have the Blazers first in that tier of the high-octane playoff teams. You should go listen to the Box Out Banter episode I did with Chris. I went a little bit more in-depth on that. But we might find the Blazers in the Western Conference Finals if things break right for them. It, It probably will involve some more luck for them than most teams, but they have the talent. They have more fitting players. I also kind of secretly hope that Harry Giles kind of gets minutes over Zach Collins. Zach Collins has been injured a lot. Um, I think he's a good player. I think he showed some flashes in his third season, but the shoulder injury was just really, it was really bad. And apparently... He's not expected to be back on the court until mid-January, so maybe Giles will get minutes, you know? And, you know, Giles is kind of the big, even though he kind of, you know, he was basically redshirted his rookie year in Sacramento, inexplicably did not pick up their qualifying offers. Really, just Vlade was, he they he really just railroaded Kings fans for the during his time as general manager. But Harry Giles still shows flashes of the talent he showed when he was a high school, the top-notch high school prospect. He's a good passer. He has great feel for the game. And I think his skills are actually conducive to how the Blazers use big man anyway. I could see Giles in a bunch of dribble handoffs. And I know his mentality and his go-hard-in-every-minute-you-play mentality is just going to fit really well with Dame Dalla. I kind of think... Maybe early on, if Giles gets some minutes while Collins is working his way back from injury, maybe him and Damian Lillard develop some chemistry on some dribble handoffs. And if Giles can maybe extend his shot a little bit, there might be some little nice little two-man game between them. Because I think both of them have, I think Dame will appreciate Harry Giles' mentality. Sacramento loves Harry Giles, and I do too. And I hope he gets some minutes over there because, you know, there is kind of, a little gap there they and they did also they did bring back Carmelo Anthony I should add who I still think has a role in the NBA and can still hit big shots like we saw in the bubble and you know before the stoppage and Anthony Simons is kind of a wild card too and he showed some flashes he's showed some flashes even though he's not on the whole a plus value player in terms of adding wins to a team. He has immense talent. And I'm just telling you guys, watch out for the Blazers. My fifth and final last question is, I'm just wondering how many games is Zion going to play? And he only played 24 games last year. But it was tantalizing in those 24 games, including the bubble, which, you know, in the bubble, it was in the bubble. He really had a 15 minute limit on his uh, game time. But before the bubble, let me pull up the stats here. Before the bubble in 19 games. Zion averaged 23.6 points per game, 6.8 rebounds per game, 
I'm not even going to say his three-point percentage is 46%, but he took .7 per game. You know, it's funny in that first game where he debuted against the Spurs, he was making every three. He made like four threes in the fourth quarter, and everybody on Twitter was like, oh, Zion has made more threes than Ben Simmons already. And then literally like the next 15 games after that, he didn't take a single three. It was just hilarious how that works, but... 59% 59% from the field, and this dude is 6'7", but of course he's a physical freak. He is 280, 275. He's a special player when he's on the court, and that's going to be my main concern. He only played 24 games last year. He was injured at Duke, especially he was out for a bit after he, you know, his foot went through his own shoe. <laughs> That just is it's crazy how physically gifted this kid is. But he already had knee surgery in the preseason. He was kind of on a minutes restriction anyway. And then in the bubble, they put him more on a minutes restriction because they said he wasn't healthy enough for a full load of minutes in a game. I'm I'm telling you, I'm terrified of Zion. And this was the main concern, right, uh, going into the draft. He, the way he walks is really is really bad. Every internet doctor ever, or and actual doctors, by the way, have broken down his gait and the potential problems it could lead to to his lower extremities. And you know he's already had surgery on his on his knee. I just don't want health to be a cloud over this guy's career because he is a no-brainer he has the potential no-brainer to be a tier one franchise player and I know David Griffin and Stan Van Gundy are just looking forward to using him in a bunch of different ways as a ball handler I question a little bit how the Steven Adams Zion pairing is going to work and I liked it at first but then I thought about it and I was like hmm I don't know if that's exactly going to fit well because even though Derek Favors wasn't exactly a stretch big you know he could shoot it at least from the free throw line he was a better spacer in terms of he was just a better space player Adams is a big burly dude he sets hard screens though and I think that's where David Griffin you know he had the quote where he said you know many of us in the media and then he even David Griffin even put himself in there had put too much emphasis have put too much emphasis on you know having a stretch big which is very important still but you do he did bring up a good point that you overlook how spacing is created in other ways Steven Adams has long been one of the best screeners in the NBA and his ability to roll to the basket off of that off of a bone crunching screen with his physical presence is just deadly and if you put Zion in a pick and roll they'll probably go under it but you know what that dude is so fast when he gets go I like it when Zion I love it I love it when Zion starts to dribble because one it's so quick it's like such quick twitch athleticism it's nuts but he makes he does not waste time making a decision he gets the ball and he's gonna go and with Steven Adams screening Zion's defender off of him and Zion rumbling downhill, even if you go under the screen, that's a scary proposition, isn't it? And I still, on the whole, I like this Pelicans team. I'm not 
as much of a fan of the roster as I was last year. I like the Kira Lewis pick. Still a big believer in Lonzo Ball. I am not going to hold his bubble performance against him at all, especially when there was, you know, 60 other games prior to that that showed that Lonzo improved one as a three-point shooter in every other facet of his game. And that was before Zion got back, because Lonzo started to turn it around in mid-December last year. Wow, we're already... It's already December, It's already been a, basically a year uh, since... It's crazy. Time time is a time has been really distorted during this entire year. It's like the fastest and slowest year at the same time. But anyway, they traded away Drew Holiday. Who knows how much JJ Redick is going to play? I'm pretty sure he wants to be back in the playoffs. I just don't see how JJ Redick finishes the season with the Pelicans. He might be traded. That's also a good trade chip. But you traded away Drew Holiday. You lose Derek Favors. You bring in Steven Adams, which is decent. I just don't know how all the pieces are going to fit together. Is Brandon Ingram going to take more leaps as a playmaker? Was his three-point shot for real? And, you know, there was a pretty big sample that it was real, but, you know, in the bubble. And we're really going to have to break down how much we overrated or underrated the bubble because I think the bubble had a huge impact on players. I think some teams who, mainly the Miami Heat, who I loved going into the season, might have made it to the finals because they didn't have the benefit of it or they didn't have to play in a normal playoff setting, which is, you know, road games and crazy atmospheres and stuff. I just wonder how much that bubble really impacted players both ways, really. But Brandon Ingram shot 39% from three on the year, and you hope he carries that into next season because I do think he's an all-star level player. Obviously, he made the all-star team last year, but can he take the next step and maybe be a third-team all-NBA guy? If things basically have to go right for the Pelicans, but I still think they're a lottery hunting team, they could maybe get into the play-in but when you look at the Spurs because of their experience and the fact that they still have DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge even though they're mid-range gods uh, that's still enough for the Spurs at least to be a play-in team I think the Grizzlies will take a step back because I thought they did overachieve a little bit last year and after they traded the veterans you know Jay Crowder Solomon Hill etc they kind of went downward on a downward trend. And the Thunder, even though they are not going to win 50 games this year, I have them as a play in, as a play potential play-in team, probably mid-30s, high-30 win team, which I imagine in the West at least because it's so stacked 1 through 8, 1 through 9 really. Um, No, 1 through 8. No, one through nine, because if the Rockets keep James Harden and Russell Westbrook, even if they're going to be discontent heading into the season, they're probably going to be a high 40s, high 50 win team. And by the way, once again, I'm projecting this out as a 72 game season. So the equivalent of a winning percentage of a high 40s, low 50 win team. So really, there's nine teams in the West that I had in my tiers that were playoff teams. Um, I have the Rockets on the outside looking in. 
And then, so if you're in a playing game and the Rockets are the ninth seed, you have three teams fighting for the 10th seed. And something tells me the Pelicans are going to be on the outside looking in on that particular race for the 10th seed, which you just see how the playing game has already added an extra element, one of analysis and two, just intrigue. Um, because now the race for the 10th seed in the West could be interesting because then that means they have a chance for a playing game. And if you have a chance for a playing game, you can be in the playoffs. Unfortunately, it, it is dependent on Zion's, Zion's health. And if he doesn't play the right amount of games, I think the Pelicans need him to play to compete for a playoff spot. They're not going to, they're going to be hunting in the lottery again. So those are the five things I'm looking forward to watching this season, non-Sixers related and non-Kings related. Another wrinkle is I do want to see how Maury, Daryl Morey's disciples do. Raphael Stone in Houston, who took over after Maury left to go to Philadelphia. Thank you, basketball gods, by the way. I will thank them every episode. Probably not, but I will thank them as often as I can that the fact that Daryl Morey is leading the charge in Philadelphia. But then you got Garrison Rosas in Minnesota. And then, of course, you got Monty McNair in Sacramento. And I'm also looking forward to seeing how much of a leash they get. You know, and obviously Raphael Stone is in a different situation than McNair and Rosas. But he is also, Stone is also on a different type of leash, right? Because we all know the situation with their owner. James Harden wants out. Russell Westbrook wants out. They did a nice job recouping two first-round picks for Robert Covington. Christian Wood was an underrated signing as well. Shout-out Christian Wood, former Process Sixer. But Rosas and McNair, they're kind of on different timelines. They're rebuilding this team. The Timberwolves are probably a little bit further ahead than the Kings, honestly, especially if McNair wants to tear it down and build it around De'Aaron Fox, which I think is absolutely the move to do. It's going to be interesting to watch the Mori disciples now kind of spread their wings and fly on their own. But those are the five things I am looking forward to this NBA season. Thank you for listening to the Sly Hooper podcast under Blue Wire Hustle. Like and subscribe. Leave a review so the podcast can be seen more in searches. And we will see you next Wednesday. Until then, deuces. <laughs>